Can a marriage survive infidelity? We dig deep to explore this thorny question. Join me, Jean-Claude Chalmet, and founder of The Place Retreats and a featured columnist for The Times, with Amy Cooper and Louise Daniels, on The Place Retreats podcast. Search Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite Android app. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to your next episode where we talk to experts and interesting people about midlife um, or topics of interest to midlife. So, um, yeah, basically we just talk about whatever we fancy, don't we, Amy? Um, we do. Yeah. We're very self-indulgent, oh, aren't we? That's fine. You know, we'd like, we've got no sponsors or anything, so we do what we like. Oh, the freedom. Yeah, the freedom. The freedom of being unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, anything you want to get off your chest, uh, Amy, this week? Or, you know? Um, at the risk of being um, courting Valium as our sponsors, um, <laughs> you know, I, no, I'm joking. I, like, I'm, we're on half term at the moment. Um, so, it is, you know, we got up this morning, you know, it's Monday morning when we're recording this. And, oh, the relief yeah, of you haven't got a home not having to get the laptop out. Oh, and, um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been nice to do that. Um, oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. We well, can just sit around this week can do nothing and like just yeah just watch films with them or something can't you because it's yeah, cold out just and you know guilt free i mean will they have diabetes and no teeth by the end of the don't week matter. don't matter yeah exactly <laughs> i mean <laughs> we're in a, in a pandemic it's unprecedented so all of that is fine it can all be sorted out you know, further down the line i reckon so yeah Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How about you? How are you getting on? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just all I'm doing is watching telly. So I've got nothing else to talk about, I'm afraid. Um, uh, that's, I've now... that's today's art. I mean, <laughs> people were talking about Picasso hundreds of years ago. Now we're talking about like, what are you binging? Yeah, so I've binge watched. I mean, I'm a little bit late to it, really. Um, it's a sin, which everybody mm. has been sort of raving about. Available to binge watch on all four at the moment. Um, if you haven't heard about it, it's a drama written by Russell T Davies and it's set in uh, from 1981 to 1991, so which is when I was like a teenager. Mm. Um, and it tells the story of a group of gay men and their friends in London living during the HIV AIDS crisis. And um, and now what I didn't know is that apparently, so uh, you know, you, I'm not going to give any spoilers away, you know, but I, I just think yeah, everyone should watch it. So, uh, um, but uh, you know, I was like watching it going, oh God, isn't it terrible? The, you know, the attitudes, you know, and, and how far mm. we've come on and it wasn't even that long ago. You know, yeah. I mean, it sounds a long time ago to much younger people. But, you know, what I didn't know was that apparently it was really difficult to sell to broadcasters because of its subject matter of HIV and AIDS. Um, and the BBC, BBC One and ITV declined it um, and Channel 4 only took it on after their commissioning editor of drama really fought for it. Um, mm. You know, well, more for them, BBC and ITV, because it's become Channel 4's biggest 
drama launch. Um, yeah. And it's been watched by more than six million it's been watched more than six million times and made it the most binged watched show to stream mm. on all four but it was the subject matter was like they, they shied away from it and that really surprised me yeah it's insane yeah. it really is it's funny because um there's a, a, a one of the guys that i know um he's probably in his early 50s oh he'd slap me for saying that he's a comedian um and he and he's he's a gay man who uh put on facebook um lots of people are asking me if i've watched a sin uh, it's a sin um i don't want to live that again no. through that again yeah. thanks i lived through it the, you know it's going to take me a bit of uh, i need to sort of um put a bit of di- even a bit more distance yeah. between you know, he, it, like yeah. him genuinely losing people. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I was uh, somebody was saying that Russell T Davis was being interviewed in a podcast, and he was saying like, um, obviously they did lose so many people, but obviously you know Russell T Davis, I guess he is he in his fifties. Yeah, I think he must be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think so he's obviously lived through it yeah. as well, mm, and mm. yeah, and have have those, has those stories to tell. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. It, it 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 is. It is, it's a crime that so many people just lost their lives. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, it's. It, it, I mean, I can absolutely behind. see why it's been such a hit. The you know the acting, uh, the writing, and the sort of depiction of what was going on at that time. And you know, mm. and you will fall in love with every character. It's joyful, but it's mm. you know, it's also it is absolutely heartbreaking. And I can't remember the last time something affected me so much and stayed with me too. But. I, I really can't recommend it highly enough. So now, um, most people who listen to this will know that um, Louise and Paul, our producer, are married. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Are you watching this together? Yeah, yeah, Louise? we watched it together. Yeah, we watched, it, watched together. it together. And with our, um, we've only got one child left at home, the youngest, who's almost sixteen. He watched it with us as well. Um, Ned was watching it as well. Oh, yeah, that that is so good. I mean, I, like I, uh, for me, it's sort of like I have to put things into compartments. So what am I going to watch on my own? Hmm. That would be RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anything to do with sort of um, frivolous stuff because my husband, Dan, he wants espionage. He wants intrigue. He wants sort of, uh, you know, he's watching 000 at the moment on Sky One, uh, sorry, on Sky Atlantic. And I sort of took one look at the trailer and I said, I'm ever so sorry. This is not, this is not, like, that wasn't made for me. So I'm thinking that there's a, a niche in the market for maybe, I don't know, like a, a political thriller with drag queens. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, like the Venn diagram. We need to tick everyone's box. Or I don't know, maybe I do need to sit in front of more, um, you know, terrifying stuff and he needs to sit. Maybe we need to blend our interests a yeah, bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but, but yeah. no, well, we all really enjoyed it. And, you know, like my mum and dad watched it. They enjoyed it. You know, and, and, you know, oh, my mum really? said that it made even my dad emotional. And, you know, and also my 20 something kids are watching it. Like everybody, I haven't met anybody who hasn't watched it and gone, that was, yeah, absolutely, you know, fantastic on every level. It's hearing those stories, okay, mm. you know, and that that's what gives us that compassion isn't yeah. it for you know and, and that that's that's amazing mm. that's really so one yeah. to watch yes definitely one to watch mm. today's guest is mm-hmm. dr philippa k and we've actually had her on before yeah. Um, she's a GP and an author you'll have seen her on tv and she's this morning's uh doctor um, also, probably a highlight of her career. Yeah. Um, when she when she came on the on the on the podcast, I actually listened yeah. to it today, Louise, because it it was back last year, and for whatever reason, 
possibly I was crying into the back of the washing machine um, at that time because it was sort of, we just locked down and it was obviously one of those that I couldn't do, but she has the most wonderful voice and a real sort of clear, relatable nature. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. So the, the book... The book she was talking about last time was The M Word, which is all about menopause. Um, And today she's talking to us about her new book, uh, Doctors Get Cancer Too. And it's her memoir of being a doctor and a patient with cancer. So she was diagnosed with bowel cancer in May 2019. Mm. Um, And, you know, half of us will receive a cancer diagnosis at some point in our lives and will immediately assume that death is imminent. Mm. And, you know, the the stats bear out, that's simply not the case. The majority will recover or if not be able to live with cancer. And I guess we really need to change the story around, you know, cancer diagnosis. And she does that so well, doesn't she? She does, yeah. She's got a real skill for, obviously she's a doctor, she knows her stuff. She's very good at explaining um, and, and, you know, her book's, both her books are great. You know, really, uh, you know, explain things really well and in an engaging way. And um, and she, yeah, she's great. I follow her on Instagram, and yeah, as you say, she's on on the TV. You know, and she's she's got a real skill for, you know, combining all of that uh, together. So have a listen to our chat with Dr. Philippa Kay coming up next. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks so much for coming on again. Um, and uh, you, you were on before talking about your book, The the M Word, if anyone hasn't uh, listened to that episode. Um, but this book, um, Doctors Get Cancer Too, is um, it's so personal and it's valuable in so many ways that we'll come on to. Um, but can I just say right from the off, what stands out for me the most is the help that this is going to give people to feel less alone because you... You really share very raw emotions and vulnerability, and that's I think that's what what we all crave in challenging situations, isn't it? We need the the comfort that comes with knowing we're not alone, um, and that can only come from someone who's going through the, you know the same the same thing. So um, yeah, I, I just think it's a really valuable um, book, a valuable resource for people. Um, 
so I just if I if I've got my numbers wrong, do say. But it, uh, am I right in thinking uh, bowel cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the UK? And um, and I know in your book you refer to it as literally the shit cancer. <laughs> so um, uh, you know, uh, am I right in thinking that there is a real avoidance of acknowledging sort of like poo and farting and stuff in our society, and that that isn't healthy, is it? You know, in fact, it's it's probably dangerous. Right. So you are completely right that bowel cancer is the fourth biggest, uh, fourth commonest cancer in the UK, but actually it's the second biggest killer. It's the second commonest cause of cancer death. And there are lots and lots of different reasons for that. Um, But one of them is to do with our natural reticence to talk about something that everybody does every single day, and that is go to the toilet. Well, we might not go every single day, but everybody does it, and that's go to the toilet. And in other countries um, where the toilets are different and potentially there's a little shelf, um, that's there for you to look at your poop. Is that what it was designed for, for that? Because I never knew that. Oh, yep. okay. Yep. And often, you know, and, and I remember my kids, when we were allowed to go on holiday, yeah. my <laughs> kids would go, why is that there? Why is the toilet so different? And that's one of the reasons. Wow. Um, and just for the want of turning around mm. or checking the paper, we are potentially missing things. So what should we be looking for then? So the commonest signs of bowel cancer now, that if you have one of these signs, it doesn't mean that you have bowel cancer. It means that you have a symptom that needs to be checked out, mm. just like every breast lump needs to be checked out, but most of them are benign. Mm. So the first is blood in the poo. Now that can be bright red blood on the paper. It can be um, blood mixed with the stool. It can be blood in the water of the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, or if your poo is uh, black and that can be that you're taking an iron supplement but sometimes that's digested blood coming from a higher up right. a change in bowel habit we all have a bowel habit so it might be once a week it might be six times a day but you knowing you're normal yeah. and if that changes persistently for more than three weeks um and then persistent tummy pain for more than about three weeks and if you have any of those mm. then it's time to see the gp okay and uh, what so what symptoms did you have that you know can we go back to you know so when and <laughs> when no yeah when and how you were First diagnosed, you know, what led to that? Can, can you talk yeah. us through that? Yeah. So um, the truth is, is that doctors are taught that when you hear hooves, don't look for zebras, look for horses. Common things are common. Mm. So I was not misdiagnosed, but none of us were looking for bowel cancer because the risk in somebody my age at the time was one in 10,000. And I did not have those bond or classical symptoms, blood in the poo, change in bowel habit, tummy pain. I had intermittent on and off pelvic pain and I had a reason for it and that I had three cesarean sections I had my appendix out I had a ectopic pregnancy I had lots and right. lots of pelvic surgery and when you have lots of surgery you're more likely to have lots of scar tissue yeah. and scar tissue can stick bits of your pelvis together yeah. or bits of your abdomen together and that causes pain mm. and it was only as the pain got worse that I went to see the GP who went well I'm also pretty sure that it's scar tissue and went to see the gynecologist who went well, yeah completely sure it's scar tissue but Mm. your wound might be stuck to your bowel. You should go and see a bowel surgeon. And I remember being really irritated that I'd done a day of bowel prep, which is not very pleasant, and I'd taken a day off work and that I was having a a procedure where you have to be sedated for um, a colonoscopy. Mm. And I thought it was all going to be a waste of time and I was going to end up having to have the the scar resection surgery anyway. Mm. Um, And so 
none of us were looking and the surgeon went this is going to be fine we're just going to do this and then we'll you know we'll we'll find the date and we'll book you in Um, and they pushed the sedation in and I lay down hugged my knees into my chest looked at the screen and saw something which was just clearly abnormal and Mm -hmm. I turned my head and the surgeon's eyes came up to meet mine and even as I said what's that I knew um, and as the room went quieter and quieter and the nurses got kinder and kinder and the more sort of professional chit chat ha- pat- pitter patter happened, the more I knew and the mm, worse it got for me. Right. Did you, can I just, do you think you recognised when you looked at the, the screen and could see, like, would I have been able to see that or do you think that was because you knew what you were looking for. It's difficult to know mm, yeah, I because I know what yeah. normal bowel looks like. But having spoken to other cancer patients, they often say that they are aware of a change in atmosphere yeah, in the room right. or that they're aware that something was happening or that something was a bit more painful or or some, that there was something. So it may be that, that some people sort of have an inkling, but I completely knew. Mm. Um, and I felt my doctor wall go straight up Mm. and all doctors have a wall and sometimes people say you know doctors are hard it isn't that we're hard it's just that if we give of ourselves always if we give everything of ourselves there is nothing left for us and you can't function like that so we have a wall and that wall allows us to continue when things are tough and then we go and cry in the toilets at the end of the wall round Mm. you know um but that that allows us to jump up and down on someone's chest whilst you can hear their relatives crying Mm. you know and you have to be able to continue and i felt my wall go up and the surgeon did all the things that we do when we are going to deliver bad news and that, you know, you go to a quiet room and you ask if somebody's going to be there, can someone else can be there with you, et cetera, et cetera. And I observed all of those things sort of happening almost outside yeah. my body in a very, but, but in a very sort of the doctor observed it all. And then the patient sort of just snapped and went, it's cancer. Let's just call it cancer. Why are you skirting? Let's just mm. let's just call it cancer. Um, and the surgeon went, yes, it's cancer. And I think it took a long time for that wall to come down. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, did things happen very quickly then? You you uh, as I understand yeah. it from the book, you, you were sort of like you were in hospital 10 days later and it, you know, it was all very, yeah. very quick. Yeah. So cancer does move quickly. Mm. Um, and. You know, depending on the uh, urgency of what is needed depends on the urgency of how quickly things are done. Um, But yes, it moved extremely quickly. It was eight days later that I was having major surgery. Mm. And in a way that that is also why there there was very little time to process. It was, I'm on this treadmill now, let's go. I'm on the roller coaster, let's go. Um, And for me, that was a little bit easier because once there was a plan, in fact, the whole way through, Give me a plan, no matter how bad it is, mm. and I'll get on board. Right. The waiting for the plan, the queuing for the roller coaster is the bit that I find the hardest. Yeah. So within you know, a week or so, I was in hospital for 10 days in ICU for a period of time, then having part of my bowel removed. Um, and then there was the recovery from that, followed by six months of chemotherapy. Mm. And then after that, before the pandemic, we hoped that I was done. 
and unfortunately they found more growths on um, the scans which were they thought hoped that we could just monitor but I ended up with two surgeries during the pandemic one yeah. of which was an absolute whopper and a half that involved 10 days in ICU 15 days in hospital on my own yeah. um, and that was probably the hardest thing that I've ever done mm. Um, but at the end of it, I was told in October that I am cancer free. In the next two weeks, I have my first set of scans and scopes and investigations. Yeah. And if you say to me, Philip, are you cancer free? I dutifully trot out, yes, I've been told I am. Mm. But I think until that first set is negative, mm. I'm not sure, I believe. Mm-hmm. And because I've never had a negative yet. No. Um, and once I have that, I hope that I will start to breathe again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think so many people will um, relate to that, um, what you've spoken about, about, um, I guess, having having a plan and that being easier to follow, even if it is a terrible, you know, yeah. a, a, it's not a, a pleasant plan, but it's a plan. You know where you are with that. I mean, do you think... It's interesting what you say. It's almost like a mixed blessing that you were a doctor because you you were able to almost look at it from outside of your own body. So I think it worked, but it worked both ways. Mm. That there were advantages and disadvantages. So completely incorrectly, doctors somehow feel that their knowledge should protect their bodies. Mm. This is complete nonsense. Mm. But there is this idea that I should be able to be a super patient, that somehow my knowledge should make me heal faster Mm. or recover quicker or be better. None of that is true, Mm. but it does make you think that. Mm. But there are some advantages. I understand when you talk to me in medicalese, and actually that comforts me because you and I are speaking the same Mm. language. I also know what there is to be scared of. Um, and I am trained to always think about what comes next if this doesn't work. So I'm always thinking ahead. So there have been times in ICU where I have sat in the bed and looked at my own heart trace and thought, oh, holy crap, Mm. somebody better come in, and I I would be thinking about the drugs. I need this, I need that, I need t'other. And then the patient part of my brain would go, I'm going to die now and be utterly terrified. And those two things fought the entire way through. But just as it affected my ability to sort of be a patient and the fact that I sort of battled with how much do I look after myself and how much do I rely on the team? Not that I ever, I never prescribed for myself. Doctors aren't allowed to do that. I never sort of doctored myself. But if you're on chemotherapy and you have a side effect, I think that most patients ring the specialist nurse you ring the nursing team and you say what should I take and I knew what to take and I knew what I could manage over the counter and I knew what I could manage with the box of tricks that they send you home with you know because they send you home with all kinds of drugs to deal with different side effects Um, and I think that I tried to cope for far too long Mm. Um, but how it affected me as a doctor in that it has that there have been some real shifts in how I practice medicine and the main one yeah the main one of which is related to an event that I can pinpoint and I can take myself back to, and yet I don't know this doctor's surname. And it still amazes me that I don't know his surname and he's changed my life Mm. in that it was one of the very, very long nights in ICU when things were not going well. Um, And the doctor came in and he sat down on my bed and he held my hand Mm. and he said, 
you're having a really tough time, aren't you? Mm. And he didn't try to fix it mm. straight away. Yeah, just listen. He just acknowledged yeah. how awful it was. Yeah. And for just that two minutes, I didn't feel on my own. Because we can do tough things. Mm. We can. It's just easier to do them when we feel that we're not the only person in the room. Yeah. And so now, when my patients are having tough times, and as a GP, we understand our patients really quite holistically. We know where you live. That sounds really creepy, but you know, sort of, <laughs> we know where you live mm. and we know your family and we know your job and we know all about you, but actually we're still trained to fix you. Mm. And even if that might just be with ourselves, come and see me next week. We'll talk about it again. You know, or here's your sick note or here's your prescription. But actually what I just do now is I wait and I say, that's really difficult. You're having a really tough time. And you see their eyes come up to meet yours and they take a breath. Yeah. And just for one minute, they don't feel so alone. Mm. And actually that's enough. It gives you the strength to carry on. Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. And, and uh, yeah, going back to what I said at the beginning, I think that, that, that sort of, you know, knowing you're not alone is, yeah. And that's why I think your book is so, yeah, going to be such a fantastic you know, just a comfort for people. I'm sorry you had to go through that, Philippa, mm. for your patients to have the most amazing yes. GP experience. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe they should teach that. It's hard to teach that. Do you know that that what's interesting is that I didn't think about publishing this book for a really long time. Mm. It was for me, it was for me alone. I sort of vomited my emotions out my fingertips to my laptop, which mm. never went, you told me this last week. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're repeating yourself. Um, never did any of that. Um, but... When it was probably six, nine months down the line that I began to think about whether or not this could help people. And what I thought about was um, the medical literature that that we were told to read during some sort of optional module in medical school. And it was not medical literature written by medics for medics. They were sort of the memoir type books. Mm. And I remember thinking how we learn from our patients all the time. Um, but that books were a way of of living their experience and how valuable they were. And I thought that maybe that my my experience could be valuable too. Mm. But the real other push to publish it was because so many of these diaries, and they are moving and wonderful, they end up with the person dead. Yeah. Mm. And then there's an afterword written by someone that loves them. And I, you know, would snivel on the tube and wonder why is no one saying what's wrong with you whilst, you know, the tears are falling yeah. down your face. But actually, we have this idea that cancer is the beginning of the end. Mm. And for most of us, it isn't. And I really want that message to be out there that most of us are going to survive cancer. And even if we don't, we're going to be living with it mm. for longer mm. than ever. Mm. And we need to be sending out a message that cancer does not have to be the beginning of the end. And this is yeah. a book about survival and about hope. Yeah, absolutely. You also talk about other people's reactions in your wider circle. And I'm just thinking, I would imagine, that, again, this will be a good book for people to read who have a loved one or a friend, you know, and I'm sure anyone that has had a cancer diagnosis would relate to the fact that sometimes people's behaviour 
can cause a burden in some way and also, you know, hurt. What insight can you give for how to approach a loved one who's received a cancer diagnosis? What's going to be helpful for them, like emotionally or practically? How do we make sure that even with when we have the best intentions, we're not adding to a, a burden for that person? So the, the book is definitely not just aimed at people with cancer. No. It's aimed at, at at people who know someone with cancer and quite frankly that's all of us um, because it's really difficult to separate our own emotions from somebody else's and so I was very aware and felt guilty even though it wasn't my fault it was my cancer's fault but very aware how much I was hurting people and how when I hurt, they hurt. And that's called transference. So, you know, when you're with someone that's very sad and a tear creeps out or when your partner's really angry and you feel yourself getting angry too, you're picking up on some of their emotions and that's called the transference. And what you feel when your best friend or your partner or your mum is in pain, that tiny bit of pain that you feel is unbearable. Mm -hmm. And so you try and fix it. Mm which is what we come back to. You try and fix it. And you say, it's only three more chemos to go. You're doing so well. You're strong. You're superwoman. You've got this. Mm. I don't feel like it. Mm. And if you don't let me say that, if you can't acknowledge that, mm. then I begin to think that my feeling isn't valid. Right, yeah. And then I feel guilty about that. And I think, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Mm. But I do feel that I don't feel strong today. Um and I feel sad and I feel angry and I don't want to go to chemo and I don't want to be positive because mm. being positive makes no bloody difference at all. Mm. I just, I, you know, and I want to be able to express that to you. So I would say to anybody who has a friend going through it, first of all, if they want to talk about it, you need to be able to listen. Right. And that's a, but that's, that's, that's quite a task. Like that doctor did for you, listening without yeah. trying to fix they're things. Not, yeah. They're not asking you to make it better. Mm. They're asking you to listen. But if they don't want to talk about it, remember that they were a person before cancer. Mm. And I was a person that liked, I don't know, shoes or gossip Mm. or cocktails or whatever it Mm. was. And maybe I still want to do those things. In fact, I definitely still want to do those things because I want to remember that that person still exists and that I'm not just completely overtaken by cancer. So to try and remember them as the person that they were Mm. and that they still are because i think that's really helpful and then the last thing is something really practical don't give me choices give me answers so when you say the world is very different to how it was 50 years ago 50 years ago you probably turned up on my doorstep with a meal Mm. um or something um and that would have been that now you send me a whatsapp uh let me know when it's a good time to come over Mm, yeah I don't, I don't know. Mm. I don't know because some days it took me an hour to get out of bed. Mm. And some days I then spent the next three hours in the toilet. I don't know. Mm. Um, let me know how I can help. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I need. I've got no headspace for me to tell you what to, to figure do. that out for you. What <laughs> I need, right, mm. is for you to work it out. Mm. And for you to work it out in a way that means that I don't need to ask you for help because that's hard yeah and we're having to do that in so many ways Mm. so what would help me is when you're in tesco say Mm. 
and buy the milk you need someone passing your door on the way home mm. to say I'm coming round at Wednesday at 11 o'clock for a cup of coffee and if at 5 to 11 you can't you say you don't feel well don't worry about it I'm going to get on with the rest of my day you can ring me five minutes before yeah. the very practical things as opposed to making me choose you choose for me yeah um that I that I found I found helpful yeah and if you if your friend's got young kids offer to do the school one mm. That's always the answer. Offer to do the school run. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's an easy one with young kids, isn't it? Um, I, I when you're saying that, I've been guilty of doing that sort of. Let me know when's good to come up because I don't want to force myself upon somebody who is in 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 a situation. But yeah. actually, what you're doing is just adding another bloody thing yes. that they need to. It's just another yeah. thing on their list of things to do, isn't it? Oh, I've got to text Amy yeah, to and let think, know what things, time. And things to think about. Yeah. Things to think about. Whilst if you say to me, um, so we're Jewish, so I'm going to use Friday night dinner as example. If mm. you say to me, I'm roasting you a chicken for Friday night. Mm. Okay, I don't have to do that job. Yeah. Um, that's easy yeah. not would you like me to and what would you like me to cook no. I don't know no. <laughs> just do it yes just do it yeah and yeah yeah I see I see that and also that you know what you said about just remembering who that person is you know it, completely separate from the cancer you know because yeah. they, they're still that, that that person aren't they yeah. so we hear quite a lot about you know being brave and soldiering on and you got this and I guess there's a strength in surrendering uh but taking time to recuperate is something that lots of us I guess will feel guilty about I mean did did you find that or or was it just it was non-negotiable you had to rest and you were going to do that I was awful at that (laughs) I think there's two questions there's two questions in there Mm. the first is about um sort of what I call toxic positivity people would send me emojis of biceps um uh, or or supergirl's cape I didn't feel super. No. I never felt super. I never felt brave. I never felt strong, ever. I felt stoic. I felt determined and fed up and angry a lot and sad a lot. And I didn't feel positive. I felt determined. And they're actually quite different Mm. things. So when you told me all the time how strong I felt, again, I didn't feel listened to. and you don't have to be positive. You just have to keep going. And that's where you show your strength. And it took me a long time to realize that, that bravery or courage is not going in and running into the battlefield saying, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Bravery is running into the battlefield knowing it's going to hurt. Mm. And so every time you go and you know it's going to hurt, mm. having the courage to go anyway. But you can go kicking and screaming. You don't have to go in skipping. Mm. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is, as a society, we are rubbish at convalescence. We used to be brilliant at it. Have an operation, go down to the seaside for two months to a convalescent home. <laughs> and now there's this idea that the moment you leave hospital, you're cured. Mm. Um, you're not. Mm. And I... It took a long time for recovery to not feel selfish. And it was only that I was ill enough to be forced into it, I think, that I began to understand that. And then the the recovery of your mind takes an awful lot longer than the physical recovery of your body and a lot of therapy. And I have been very open that I have been to therapy since a couple of months after my diagnosis. And I still go to therapy now because cancer is a huge, huge trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is difficult to then get the balance between 
recovery and listening to your body, but pushing your body to heal. Mm. So you have to get up, get out of bed day one of this major surgery where they have cut you from just underneath your breastbone all the way down to your pubis. Mm. You get up on day one. Um, and on day two, you take three steps to the chair. And every day you have to push through and you have to balance that against recovery. And for me, the balance was never in the the physical work that I knew that I had to do, mm. but was the importance of going to work. So, yes, I had to take six to eight weeks off after each of my major surgeries. But as soon as I was able to go back to work, even though work was utterly exhausting was hugely important because for my recovery mentally Mentally, because it made me remember that I existed Mm. and that I wasn't only a cancer patient recovering or a cancer patient waiting for chemo Mm. and so actually the balance of the two things the balance of what you need to recover your body and what you need to recover your mind and they might be conflicting sometimes but that's something that that needs to be worked on just going back to what you were saying before about yeah i think your book and your instagram account because also you've documented a lot of this um on your instagram account um when you were in hospital um back in was it october september october yeah september and yeah. october yeah. you know and also your you know, your your tv appearances your book your ig account your tv appearances are really valuable because i think sort of fluffy suggestions around self care just aren't helpful and you don't do that but you kind of address the feelings around it which I think is very valuable. I think that that if 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 all there is left for you to do self-care wise is a bubble bath, I'm really jealous of you. Mm. I know that sounds really really not nice, but I'm really <laughs> jealous that your life is so good. Yeah. That's the only thing left to do, right? Because for me, self-care mm. starts with are your basic needs as a human being met, mm. and that means are you warm? Mm. Are you fed? Are you dry? Do you have a place to stay at night? Mm. Are you taking your medicines? Are you looking after your body? Mm. And then are you healthy sort of physically? And then we move on to our other needs. And then Mm. we can get to the bubble baths. Yes. And there was a long, it was a long time before I was at bubble bath. I'm not even sure I'm at bubble bath now, um, you know, but, but, you know, self-care, so self-care, I think it means lots of different things to diff- different yeah. people. But if you are telling me and my, my patients say, oh, I'm, you know, I, I really, I, I'm, I want to take the time for myself to have a manicure. And I say, but you're not taking your antidepressants. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You know, your, your manicure is not going to solve that. No. Um, and, and I think that we need to be pushing self-care because what essentially self-care is, is is being able to love yourself enough to look after yourself. Mm-hmm. And that needs to come from the inside before we do the superficial things. And I'm not putting down a bubble bath. I love a bath as much as anybody else. Mm-hmm. But are you whole from the inside first? Yeah. You were saying before that in two weeks' time, there's this line in the sand, isn't there? You were talking before that you, you kind of, um, you feel like you should say you are cancer-free technically but you you're waiting for that next uh, screen in two weeks is that right yes that's right um and all cancer patients and cancer survivors live scan to scan mm. um and what we call scanxiety so anxiety around yeah. your scans is really real mm. um but 
it, I am also very aware with my doctor's hat that one can't just rely on the scan because if you rely just on the scan to believe, then what's going to stop me wanting a scan at five months instead of six or at three months or at two weeks? Mm. Or can I have blood tests next week mm. and this week to reassure me? Yeah. Um, and so you, you can't just rely on that. But the first set is a really big set and then I guess I I spent a lot of time when I was in the middle of my treatment talking about wanting to get back to normal mm. and it took me a very long time to understand that there was no getting back to normal that I have to accept that cancer is something that's happened to me and that it's going to always be part of my life now mm. and so it's that dreadful word the new normal mm. um, and I am going to have to find my way within that and for me that will be beginning to plan because that's something that cancer patients don't do is that you don't plan too far ahead because that's too frightening mm. and I guess in some way the pandemic has taught us all not to plan because yeah. who knows what the rules are going to be next weekend or in two months time so we've all learned to live in the present but what's helped me the most when it comes to scanxiety even though when I've gone between sort of positive scan to positive scan and it was all a case of you know let's see how much this has grown and what we're going to have to do and what we're not going to have to do is to shrink time so when six months or a month or two weeks right now is too much to shrink time further down. And we all do this. So you've got a big meeting at work, you know, you're going to have a really difficult day. So you reward yourself with, I'm going to have that nice bubble bath at the end of the day or a nice meal or a bar of chocolate, right? Mm. And so we shrink time and then we shrink it even further. Well, I've got an exam. It's just an hour and a half. You have to get through the hour and a half. And sometimes we shrink time to the next five minutes because mm. I can get through the next five minutes. Yeah. And in hospital, there were times when I was not even at the next minute. I was at the next breath. Mm. But shrinking time to make yourself in the present as opposed to thinking about the future can be very helpful. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's such, you know, wise words and insight. Um, and can I ask you, what is going on with screening um, at the moment? Because is it offered uh, from over 60 at the moment, but there's it's supposed to be dropped to 50 so for, or something? But mm, So for bowel cancer, currently the screening programme starts at 60. A couple of years ago, um, it was agreed that um, the screening age would be dropped to 50 because that's when the incidence of bowel cancer begins to rise quite significantly. Um, and the government agreed they would do that, but they didn't put a start date to it. Um, and so nothing has been fixed as yet. And um, as frustrating as it is, and now, of course, there's been a pandemic on top of that. Yeah. Mm. Currently, the screening starts at 60. But if you have any of those symptoms before you go in, and if you happen to know that you have a family history, if you know that your dad passed away of colon cancer at 45, don't wait for symptoms. Go to your GP because, right. because there are screening. that we, we have a way of getting you in. If you have a very strong positive family history, we can refer you for screening colonoscopies earlier. Right. And if somebody did have that family history, how often would they be screened? I'm just thinking about what you were saying just now about how you, you could almost become addicted to that and just want to be sort of scanned every five minutes. But how often would that happen <laughs> so for that person? It depends on what 
the family history right. is and and whether or not we know what your gene is and what we see on your scan. So, for example, there is a condition where you have lots and lots and lots of polyps um, in the bowel and then you would have regular colonoscopies and sometimes it might be annually and sometimes it might be five-yearly. Mm. As it so happens, I was found to have a gene that doubles my risk yeah. of bowel cancer. Now, it doubles my risk from one in 10,000 at the time to two in 10,000. So it was still pretty rare yeah. at my age. But what that means though is that when my kids are 16 they will have a choice as to whether or not to be tested and my siblings now have had that choice Mm. if they are tested and they are negative then they're the same as everybody else in the screening program if they test and they're positive then probably every five years from the age of 30 that they would have a screen uh, screening colonoscopy right okay that's amazing isn't it i guess like you were saying before we have to get with this pro with the knowledge that we we will all be living with cancer for longer as 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 we look into the future, you know, over the next three or four decades. Yeah, but when it comes to bowel cancer, the vast majority of of bowel cancers grow from benign polyps. Mm -hmm. So if you have a screening colonoscopy because you've got a family history and a polyp is found, the polyps are removed during that colonoscopy. Right. And therefore you don't get cancer. Mm. Yeah. And so you can pick something up and you can prevent it even happening. Mm, yeah. Incredible, mm. isn't it? Wow. Thank you so much for taking the yes. time to talk Thank with us, you. Philippa, um, and sharing your experience yeah. so articulately and um, and your knowledge and, and obviously the book. We'll put all the links in the um, in the episode uh, to that and also your Instagram account. I'm sure you're inundated daily with messages of gratitude there. Thank you for chatting to us. Thank you for having me. A podcast from producerpaul.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 